I'm Zach D'Amico. And I'm Carson Cook. And welcome to The New Auteurs, the podcast where we take the critical framework from the golden era of cinema and apply it to today's films and filmmakers. On each episode of The New Auteurs, we'll go deep on one director, writer, actor, or other filmmaker, using a singular film as a case study in an attempt to understand their screen essence. And today, we are examining every single microsecond of film, every micro inch of the frame, of notorious perfectionist David Fincher's The Game. So, so Fincher's first movie, for some context, his first movie, uh, Alien 3, it came out the year after both of us were born. And his most recent movie is obviously coming out next month, Mank. But his career, especially in narrative feature films, has very much tracked our lives. So, you know, which films were the first to pop onto your radar? Did you jump in as like, an elementary school eight-year-old just, you know, streamlining Fight Club directly into your veins or, or was, it, was it later? Yeah, I was, I was trying to kind of think about this. And, and he is one, since I did see some of his stuff when I was younger, I actually can't quite pinpoint what the beginning was. I, I think I probably, the first movie of him, his that I saw would have been Alien 3, but that would have been because I watched all the Alien movies. And so like that was my my jam when I was younger, any kind of sci-fi stuff. And I really liked, liked Alien. So that probably would have been early. And then I know I saw Fight Club in high school and I believe Seven and Panic Room kind of whenever they were on video in high school as well. And so then, as a, just quickly, as like a big Alien fan, so I am, I have only seen the first one, actually, and I'm very curious, did you have a reaction to Alien 3 like, you know, big Star Wars fans' reactions to the prequels, right? Is it like, you've let me down, you have, you know, betrayed a beloved franchise, or were you just like a kid who was like, yeah, that was pretty fun? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was a kid. I felt the same way about the Star Wars movies. I loved Star Wars when I was a kid, and I thought the prequels were super fun. I mean, uh, that's that's part of being as a kid. It's hard to get. It takes a while, I think, to get really disappointed by a movie. Yeah, to build that investment and like yeah. almost a sense of entitlement to like IP to a certain degree. Right, and to understand that something is bad. I think it true. It takes a long time to to understand that something isn't what you wanted you you take away the best parts of it or any part of it that that speaks to you when you're a kid it's much easier to just like things as a kid i do wonder how much our generation had our opinion of the prequels influenced by basically like osmosis isn't the right word but just like living with our parents and having their disappointment seep through to us because we you know we were also, I think eight years old when the first one when when the first one came out, and then the, you know the next two came out over the next couple of years, and like were we really was our generation really sophisticated enough to like be truly disappointed? But I feel like when I talk to most people my age now who are going to see the Force Awakens, who are going to see we're going to see the last Jedi. It's like, Oh, finally we're getting a good star Wars movies. You know, we would let down. And it's like, is that just sort of like revisionist history that I was disappointed as a nine-year-old? I think probably it is. Yeah. I, I don't believe as someone who generally 
thinks the prequels are better than their reputation and will mostly yeah. defend kind of the ambition of it. Um, and honestly, a lot of the execution, I think it's bullshit when people say like our age, so they, they were disappointed when they came out. <laughs> I don't think that's true for a minute. And it wasn't just me when I was a kid who liked the prequels. It was literally every single person in my elementary and middle school. Yeah. Like yeah. it was, everybody was all in on these movies. So I, yeah, I, I think anyone who, who's saying they were disappointed as a nine-year-old walking out of the Phantom Menace, I just don't buy it. You might be able to make an argument for like the claim that the politics of it all, uh, rather, like, like a lot of people say it just got too far into the weeds, but like you might be able to make the argument that that made it boring. Because thinking mm-hmm. back to when I was in elementary school and, and junior high, like I didn't like movies when they were boring. Like that was the extent of my sophistication and my discernment. Yeah. It was like, oh man, this is really putting me to sleep. Where is it? And so like, I could see maybe some of that uh, making it like less of a, a fun action-packed adventure movie than I would have otherwise wanted. But other than that, I, I do feel like it's tough to... Yeah, and you, were pro- you got to go to the theater in a lot of cases to go see a movie, which would have been a special occasion for a kid. Yeah. And yeah. there were a bunch of lightsaber like, fights. And, put, and like, all of the flavors in one drink. So I'm yeah, like, you, your parents might have taken you to go pee when you when there were politics stuff going on. Yeah, I just <laughs> I yeah. I mean I I don't really for buy everyone. don't really buy that. And when it comes to I mean it was the same way. You know I had no idea that people didn't like the later Alien movies, uh, similar to the prequels. That I, I didn't realize people didn't like these movies until much later. And even I I I liked Alien Three. I'd seen it when I was young and I'd seen it again uh, when I was a little older and I just watched it actually again the other night. And I don't think that movie's nearly as bad as, as its reputation. I think the theatrical cut is fine. And then the assembly cut, which was done without Fincher's input, which is kind of done from his notes of, you know, the movie that he seemed to want to be making is is a pretty good movie, especially that version of it. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I know he disavows it now. And I, I, I do think a lot of that is just because of the experience he seems to have had working on that movie and the fact that it got taken away from him, but I, I don't think it's a bad movie. And I think it's actually a movie that fits in really well in the context of his filmography. It's clear from that movie, what kind of filmmaker he would be. Okay, so so when okay, so to go back to your origin story, when when do you when do you think you were aware of like Fincher as Fincher, or when you know when were you like okay this this guy has made a couple of movies I've seen now, and I'm aware of him as like a director. I think it probably would have been around Benjamin Button okay. because that would have been the first one that I saw in theaters because I wouldn't have seen Zodiac in theaters. It, it, it probably would have been too oh um, a I little too much for for me uh, even as a you know what a high schooler I think I may I, I and I just wasn't tapped into you know it was kind of like an R-rated drama my parents were dragging me to see Zodiac but I saw Benjamin Button and I definitely you know at that point I think that's the one where I think I knew enough about Fincher I knew it was the guy who made these other movies that I liked this these few movies that I liked and did not connect with with that movie at all that's the one i felt disappointed by and i i actually feel i 
I, I should revisit it and I did not get a chance to before we're recording this, but it's one that I do really wonder if I would connect to a lot more or appreciate a lot more as, you know, someone with a lot more movies under their belt and a lot more years under their belt than a, than a high school student who was thinking, Oh, is this, this is the guy who made fight club. So how about you? And then, okay. So, uh, so I mean, I'm, I have something similar. I think, I think the first of his movies I saw, I think the first movie I saw was Panic Room. I think I like convinced my parents or maybe just illicitly rented it from Blockbuster in, okay, it was a couple years after it was out. It was like junior high. I, they were just starting to let me watch. Like my parents were just starting to let me watch slightly more adult movies as long as they were like, they were always okay with thrillers. You know, they, they always wanted to keep steer, to have me steer clear of like nudity. So, you know, avoid all the teen comedies, avoid, you know, avoid anything with like really adult themes that I wouldn't understand, but they were fine with thrillers. They were fine with scary, you know. That's, that's like my parents with, with sci-fi. So I watched all the alien movies when I was in high school, even though like, or in like, middle school and those are uh, not not for children but no not at all that didn't even register with me it just like made sense with your (laughs) but um yeah so that was like one of the first ones and i i mean you know i just remember liking it i honestly my like strongest memory was kind of this feeling of like i think it wasn't until college that i really started thinking about movies beyond the context of let's talk about what they are about uh, I think he was one of the first directors in a couple of his movies in particular that got me talking about like what movies mean or, you know, how they're made and what that means. And I think watching, I watched Fight Club for the first time in like sophomore, junior year of college, which was the same year. I think my sophomore year was when The Social Network came out. And then I watched Seven in college. And I think with all of those, they were these movies that seemed to me as like a college kid, first and foremost, just like very propulsive cinematic thrillers. But then they also like lingered with me and like my friends and I would talk about what they mean and whether, you know, whether or not Fight Club was critical of or endorsing like machoism and uh, like a lot of the like the arguments within the social network about the legacy and the impact of Facebook and whether it's a good or a bad, because at the time it wasn't as obvious. Like we talk about how prescient is, but I don't remember coming out of the movie thinking, oh, that was a scathing indictment of Facebook, but now it looks so obviously like that in retrospect. But all that is to say like, you know, his movies were, because they're, they do not sacrifice being like blockbusters essentially um, for their meaning. They like, they're really good entry level movie for for you know film studies because <laughs> they like pull you in but then they're about something a bit more and they keep you there the social network is also that that's you, you bring up the social network as as kind of a a big turning point and it was for me as well that was definitely a movie i walked i walked into and out of and was just like wow this is you know this is something and it remains to for me one of my one of my favorite movies of last decade and generally a movie i I consider to be one of my one of my favorites, but it was also for me that was kind of an early. I, I started really following the Oscars. I'd follow my my parents like to watch the Oscars. I and they love film, and and so I had been exposed to the Oscars pretty early on. It wasn't until two thousand 
the 2009 race where I really made an effort to watch all the movies that were nominated for major awards. And I did that in 2009, but I didn't have, I didn't quite have a horse in the race uh, to the same extent that, that I've had later. Um, despite, you know, if I go back now, the Hurt Locker would easily be that horse. But at the time I hadn't, hadn't quite developed the appreciation for that movie that I later would. But 2010, was the year where I saw the social network and I was all in on the social network and was really my first kind of instance of Oscar devastation when it became clear that the King's speech was going to be the one. Uh, and I, I, that, that disappointment that, you know, every, every Oscar watcher who gets way too invested in the Oscars comes to, to really know. So that was the start of, yeah. of something that I have mixed feelings about. And it's interesting. Do you think like, cause, cause you know, it's, I feel like people, especially right. His new movie is a black and white homage to an interrogation of classic Hollywood of one of the most beloved films of all time, Citizen Kane. It is very much seen as like the work of a quote unquote, a quote unquote, an auteur. And yet up until the social network, and I guess really two years earlier with Benjamin Button, I mean, he wasn't really Oscar fair. You know, he, he was like, he made crime thrillers. He made, I mean, the game, though not really a crime thriller is effectively a, like a detective story, an investigation, a guy trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Uh, seven panic room zodiac i mean he made and continues to make but he was really known for these procedural taught crime thrillers and i'm wondering like i i'm just so fascinated by the 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 shift in his filmography with the curious case of benjamin button and then how that may have impacted like his decision to take on the social network maybe the way he he treated that movie um because it is still like a bit of a departure from those those first half dozen or so not quite to the extent that that button is but like do you feel like that shift in his career let's say we'll mark it around 2008 to 2010 obviously he's gone back to to similar movies with gone girl and and girl the dragon tattoo but do you feel like that was a positive turning point in his career. If, I mean, maybe it wasn't even a turning point. Maybe, you know, maybe that's not how you see it, but, but how do you see it? That's interesting because it is, I was actually, I was looking back at, at his, uh, you know, nominations and whatnot. And in my head, I actually had it that, so I, I had forgotten that Zodiac basically got blanked at the Oscars, uh, despite being nominated for the Palme d'Or uh, and, and a lot of critics groups, both for director and picture. And, uh, and that, cause you know, we think of that as kind of maybe, maybe that's the start of kind of his prestige phase, but it's obviously a weird prestige movie that, that is, you know, has kind of an unsatisfying from a Hollywood standpoint ending. And it's tough for me. Benjamin Button again is the outlier. And, and that's the one that's kind of the most in my mind, nakedly emotional, but he's an interesting case because I don't get the sense that he makes that he's doing making Oscar plays. I do not get the sense at all that he makes, he is trying to win an Oscar. Um, And I think after the fiasco of alien three, what, what became pretty clear is that he makes movies that he wants to make and he's following his, his own path there. So even something and the social network, for instance, I really think fits. I don't see that, movie as a departure 
for him at all. I think it's exactly in in line with kind of his focus on obsession and uh, the darker recesses of of humanity. I think it fits in really well there. And then, yeah, obviously he goes back to the well and does some thrillers and does things like Gone Girl. Mank is the other one that seems like it could be somewhat of an outlier. Uh, I, I can't speak to it it yet but um but i'm interested it seems like a passion project for him and i think that's what what he does a lot of times he does these passion projects so it, it's hard i actually i I'm, I'm not sold that there was a turning point yeah he also he seems very he seems preoccupied with in one instance the idea of credit and legacy and like i think you see that in in small ways, in like Zodiac, like yes, from the one perspective, it's about obsession, but it also like Zodiac versus, I'm always fascinated by the difference between Seven and Zodiac, between the difference between a killer who has to, like everyone has to know that he did it and everyone has to acknowledge his brilliance versus a killer who is so effective at remaining in the shadows, even right all the way through to that unsatisfying end of the movie and then I think he like centers that more in social network and this idea of credit and legacy and then I I do think like I haven't seen it yet but with Mank that seems to be like a through line that you can draw in this focus on the battle between the screenwriter the screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz and and Orson Welles who may have helped on the story in the script, but then directed the film and certainly is the auteur and the creator of the vision for Citizen Kane, according to the history books. And I also think it's a little, it a little bit reflects his interest in how things get made and like what goes on behind the scenes. It's interesting. He, you know, he's given interviews about like what got him interested in filmmaking. And he grew up like, he grew up in Northern California, basically next door to George Lucas and started, and he started making like, you know, home movies as a kid, very much the origin story you hear of a lot of like directors, I'm sure much of which is apocryphal and again, a little bit revisionist, but, uh, but nonetheless, he talks about seeing this documentary about the making of Butch Cassidy. And when he talks about it, he talks about how like he basically says the actual circus of everything going on was invisible as it should be. But in watching the documentary, he got to see it all. And in seeing it, he became obsessed with the idea of how that it was the ultimate magic trick. And I do, I think you see this sort of like his obsession with the procedure and the process and the mechanics, whether it's the mechanics of the investigation of Zodiac or the founding and launch of Facebook or potentially the writing and, and making of, uh, of Citizen Kane, this, this interest in the behind the scenes uh, of the things we all know and love or hate. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, he's one of these filmmakers who, who very clearly seems to be, you know, and maybe we just read that into the movies. We do this with Nolan a lot where we say, you know, his movie, their movies about movies, their movies about filmmaking. And, and I, I do think it's true. I think we see that with, with him and, and these, these filmmakers who are, you know, really obsessed with kind of achieving some sort of perfection in their craft. It's almost inevitable that, that the thing they're going to be able to achieve perfection is making movies about their craft or about their own, you know, kind of struggles with it. And, but, you know, I, I think that, that, says a lot about kind of the, we think of him as kind of a technical uh, precision focused filmmaker. And that's most, that's probably going to come from being someone who, you know, who, who grew up thinking about how movies are made. 
Yeah, I also think it's just like, even when it's not about movies, it's always about the how, or it's like, it's always about, or not always, but it's often about like what's underneath the surface. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's what's underneath the surface of, uh, you know, a movies, but more often it's what's underneath the surface of this, this institution that we know a certain way, or like most of the time it's what's underneath the surface of these people who are one thing. And that's, and that seems to be like really the thing that you can draw from a lot of his work is that he is far more interested in the dark side of humans, of people, of humanity, uh, than he is in like what they present to the world. Yeah, he's a he's a deconstructionist in a lot of in a lot of ways, but but of kind of our general society. Okay, I, I wanna I wanna go through or briefly do a quick game related to his box office. Okay, because obviously we talked about that we talked about the fact that most of his films do have a mass appeal. Uh, and that, you know, his background is in commercials and music videos. I don't think he's, he's, he doesn't seem like someone who sees himself as this purist, you know, he wants to entertain people. Um, no, and he was, uh, and he has a, a, you know, a background in commercial filmmaking and he, right. his films are commercial and he was, you know, shortlisted for the first Spider-Man movie and he pitched them on that and he was going to make the world war Z sequel a couple years ago before that fell through. So yes, he's not someone who turns his nose up at, at that kind of thing. So he has, he has three movies that made more than two times as much their budget in us box office. Mm -hmm. Guess those movies. Three movies that doubled their budget domestically. Yes. Benjamin Button. No. Okay. Guess that, that movie may have been very expensive. Social Network. Yes. 2.3 okay. times its budget uh, in, in domestic box office. Okay. Third best in terms of this metric, the multiplier, basically. Gotcha. Okay. I need to think. Uh, Gone Girl. Yep. Yep. 2.8. Uh, so, so for context, so Social Network cost 40 million and, and pulled in 96 million domestically mm-hmm. uh, and an additional 127 worldwide uh gone girl at 2.8 pulled in 167 million on a 61 million dollar budget mm-hmm. okay uh, and then there's there's one more there's which is the number one panic room close panic room is just right below mm. uh, two times two times that, that okay. is his next one yeah his so All his right. number one is mm-hmm. seven and that mm. is partially because it is his cheapest movie. And it has Brad Pitt right when he Yes. Yes. Is so he made the it biggest for, star he made in the world. It, he pulled he brought it in at 33 million and it and it pulled in 100. So it's a three times multiplier. But that but get this. So he's got he's got those three in Panic Room which is just below. But then he has four movies whose US box office are less than their budget. Now now all of these movies made enough worldwide mm-hmm. to, to go above their budget but they're not shattering yeah. it you know and and domestically they're not even beating it and those you know some of those are the fault of of just poor performance some of them are high budget so you have the game which uh came in at 50 million and and made only 48 in the u.s which is criminal mm-hmm. uh which i think if that movie comes out i don't know a decade later uh yeah i do think it actually would make a lot more money then you have fight club which was made for 63 million and only made 37 barely more than half then zodiac which was made for 65 and only only made 33 uh and then finally benjamin button which cost 150 million which was the problem there and made 127 in the u.s so you you know you don't necessarily have this consistent the consistent box office 
massive success that you might expect from the type of movies he makes. And even just like looking back at them, they, a lot of them feel like they, they should have made more money. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think I didn't, I didn't realize that he had made so many movies that were losing money. Uh, and, and it's almost, but it's interesting. I mean, he, he came about in an era where, you know, you can lose money on the game and you can lose money on Fight Club, but but then they have a life on video. Yeah. And in, they develop a cult following. Office, to be fair. And yeah. your global box office. But they they develop a life on video. And so that gives you kind of, you know, studios see that and they that gives you the cachet and they know that they can make, you know, even betting on you, they can make money on the aftermarket sales and whatnot. And before they even, so- I mean, before they even put the movie in theaters, they probably right. pre-sold like, you know, foreign distribution and, sure. and DVD sales for, you know, 50 million. Yeah. And then you have something like Zodiac, which, uh, you know, again, also becomes kind of a, a cult favorite and, and appreciated, but also it was, you know, acclaimed enough at the time. And then you have Benjamin Button obviously loses money, but it gets a bunch of Oscar nominations right. and uh, including your best picture and best director. So at that point, he's now reached kind of the, with Benjamin Button, I mean, that's kind of the turning point there. Perhaps he he's reached the end of the period where DVD sales were going to yep. matter uh, yep. when budgeting things, but now he's an Oscar player and now he's considered, even though he hasn't like really done that well at the Oscar since he is considered kind of a perennial Oscar player. And even some your thrillers like gone girl and dragon tattoo get acting nominations. uh, Unusually maybe for their source material. And you see talk of when you hear about Netflix, when people talk about how Netflix is throwing money at these auteurs, you hear him mentioned in the same breath as Scorsese and Cuaron and the other folks that Netflix has given hundreds of millions of dollars to to make their passion projects, despite those folks having a much longer track record with the Academy than Fincher does. And I think, right, I think it was a one-two punch. It's the end of DVD sales, but it's also... We've talked about this before and that we think the quote unquote end of the mid budget adult drama is a little bit uh, exaggerated. I think there, you know, there were plenty of movies last year that succeeded on 50 to $60 million budgets, like little women and and Ford V Ferrari and knives out. But, but nonetheless, you still have a declining share of, of films are those 50 million. I mean, I mean, those budgets for, uh, for his, you know, Alien 3, 50 million, 733, The Game, 50, Fight Club, 60, Panic Room, 50, Zodiac, 65. They're all in that mid-range. And, you know, studios are still making them, but they're not making as many. And they they expect more of a return. With the, the like, massive growth of IP-based blockbusters, they just expect, they don't want 1.5 times return. They want four, five, six, ten 10 times return on their box office. And they want movies that are going to play globally because that's where all that money is. And even his movies, like most of his movies made right around the same globally as they did in the US. Not a single movie made even as much as twice as much globally as they did in the US. And that is just not like how studios work today. Uh, And so with that combined with a, a, a decline in DVD sales, all of a sudden you see his most recent movie is Gone Girl. It makes far more of a profit than any of his prior movies except for Seven. And yet that's the one that gets the spigot presumably turned off and turns him back towards television, toward a streamer, 
and, he, and he's now signed, you know, a multi-picture exclus- exclusivity deal with Netflix, which su- suggests despite his most recent movie being one of his most successful, he's, his films are just not the type of movies that studios are financing right now. Although, although you do wonder if he went to, you, you wonder about the Netflix thing. In his case in particular, you can see, I actually don't know. I do not know the backstory for something like Mank, but you know, for instance, I think with Martin Scorsese and the Irishman, correct me if I'm wrong, like he took it, he, he wanted to make it at Paramount or whatever. And they're like, this is too expensive. No, thank you. Yep. And so yep. then he goes to Netflix. Whereas Fincher, we've talked to this already. He's a guy, he like, he does not want the studio telling him anything. He wants no. to be it to be hands off. So I think, which is kind of the sense that you get from Netflix at this point. And they'll give you the money and kind of let you do your thing, sometimes to a film's detriment, sometimes not. But that feels like exactly the kind of deal that appeals to him. So, uh, and so I, I think do it's, I think it, that. I think it really says something, too. Because I do think at one point or another, most studios have, they all make the claims of artistic integrity and final, you know, directorial final cut and all this stuff. But when you look at his career... You know, uh, obviously he had a bad experience with Fox on Alien 3, but then he went to work with New Line for Seven, which had just been acquired by TBS and then merged with Warner th- the next year. Uh, then he made the game with Polly Graham, which was sort of, which was a British studio. But then his next seven movies before Mank, he worked with Fox, Sony, Paramount, WB, Sony, Sony, Fox. So clearly he did not have an experience at any of these places that engendered immediate loyalty and yet he makes one movie with netflix and for the first time in his career commits to exclusivity with them uh despite having literally made the rounds at every single studio except for universal uh and polygram was sold to universal like a year later so he basically made a movie for them i mean it's like that says something about netflix that they like yeah we hear what they talk about and we hear the artists who make movies praise them but like that's a commitment that he hasn't been ma- willing to make for 25 years that he made after one movie. Yeah. That's- and, and although to be fair, I think his deals, his deal is for, you know, four years, open question, <laughs> whether, he makes a, whether he makes another movie. I mean, I that's think true. that's very open, that's but, but I definitely think studios would like, I, I feel like studios would like to be in the David Fincher business still. I mean, I, I think it's, I think an interesting comparison for kind of the, the kind of movies that, he makes and kind of the vibe and in some ways kind of the box office performance you know throughout the career is uh Villeneuve who also who makes kind of these gritty not very pleasant like pseudo blockbusters that make you know decent money but don't make a ton of money domestically and in cases like Blade Runner lose money domestically but but he, he's doing Dune. Like, I mean, and that's IP, but studios want to be in the Denis Villeneuve business still. And I imagine they want to be in the Fincher business. It's the question of whether Fincher wants to be in business with him. It's a, I mean, that's a, that's, a, like, I, I, that's a phenomenal comparison. They're, they both make movies that are like, if you took all the pieces of a blockbuster, like on paper, like the genre, the casting, uh, the plot, you know, and, and, and you sent them just like through the looking glass. And you did like dark version. Uh, and that's obviously an oversimplification, but they are like, I'm interested in these same things, but I'm interested in, in what lay beneath the surface. And they often, I have seen Villeneuve, especially I have seen a number of his movies and felt kind of a, a 
an unsettled audience around me. Like, this isn't what I came for. This is kind of what I came for. It's bizarro what I came for, but, uh, and some people will leave. It'll, it works really well for some people. Other people really don't want that, but I get it. I do get a similar feel from Fincher. That's, that's a really great comparison. I also don't think as a filmmaker that he gets enough credit. Well, that he has, there are a lot of, of directors out there who have this reputation as being like film nerds, you know, like you tar- people like Tarantino who worked at, you know, worked at a video store and it's this like we, we, you know, launch them up onto a pedestal because they're just like us. They love movies just like us. Uh, but I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I mean, this is, you know, take out the like stories that he tells on his own. Uh, but this is, you know, he, he did still grow up next door to George Lucas and then in high school, he was a projectionist. In high school, he, he didn't act, he didn't direct. He did set and lighting for theater. This guy's interested in like the nitty gritty of filmmaking, of theater, of, um, of building a production, basically. He did, and then one, one of his early jobs was doing visual effects for Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's company. And then for years, he started doing commercials. He did you know music videos for Paul Abdul, for Madonna. He was interested in like, he, he very clearly, in, in his music video stage sort of keyed into the importance of movement and the way it can draw the eye and sort of like guide the brain in a certain way, which carried over to his feature filmmaking. Even after Alien 3, like he returned to music videos after the critical derision of, uh, of Alien 3. And throughout his career, he's continued to make commercials. He's clearly just obsessed with filmmaking in the, the broadest sense of production. And that's not quite the same as Tarantino being able to recite every 70s black exploitation movie and spaghetti Western, uh, like ad nauseum and put them into his movies. But to me, it's the same kind of obsession and fascination with an art form that we should want from our filmmakers, perhaps even a better form because it's not as nostalgic. I, I think so. I mean, this is where, uh, I mean, the Tarantino version of it, Tarantino does it well often, but not always. And, and Tarantino's kind of version of that can get annoying, uh, to, <laughs> to say the least. And, and it is, I mean, it's interesting to see, yes, these filmmakers who kind of are less obsessed, I suppose, with film as, you know, as kind of the output as the input. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great which, putting it. Yeah. Which really you know, I think leads to really impressive filmmaking. And I think we talk about his, you know, precision and whatnot, but, and, and in a good way often. And I think that's what, what that stems from, uh, because he knows what, what goes into a film and he's done, you know, he was an assistant cameraman. And I mean, he knows what goes into each phase, which is, uh, which is very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. When his, I mean, when his, you know, his editor, one of his, uh, one of his repeat editors talks about the fact that he treats editing like intricate mathematical problems. And I think it's interesting. You don't hear a lot about how he takes over the editing process. You hear that about some filmmakers, but I don't, you know, I get the sense that he is a team player in, and people do work with it. It's grueling and it's, it's uh, exhausting and probably it, it, it frays the nerves of relationships, but it doesn't feel like there's a ton of, necessary bad will 
most people at least, you know, he certainly, again, like inspires a, a bit of loyalty amongst his crew. People do repeat a couple times with him. But nonetheless, he's still clearly involved at every stage of the process, which reflects both that need for control, which everyone talks about, but it also reflects what's talked about less, which is just an interest in every phase of the process. He's not a, you know, highfalutin director who's above all the below the line stuff, right? He, he thinks that's every bit as important as what, you know, a typical director does. Yeah. And I think he, he probably doesn't get enough credit either for being uh, more, more of an actor's director than, than people might think, which is another thing that I find uh, his, his films are littered, I think, with, with good to great performances and, and rarely do any feel kind of out of step with the broader structure or thematic or narrative point of the film. Uh, I, I had I actually have a, a hypothetical for us here, which I was curious your thoughts on. He's he's directed five actors to Oscar nominations, and I was looking at these, and I was curious which one we think is the closest. Which one came closest to actually winning? an okay. Oscar. And I think there is, I'll read you these. I actually think there's an obvious choice. So maybe we'll, we'll even think about what the second most likely one is. So you've got Brad Pitt and Taraji P. Henson in 2008 for Benjamin Button. And then you have Jesse Eisenberg in 2010 for the social network, Rooney Mara in 2011 for girl with the dragon tattoo and Rosamund Pike in 2014 for gone girl. In 08, the winner was Sean Penn for milk. Yeah. So you have Sean Penn, but then Mickey Rourke for The Wrestler is also that year okay. um, in the category of Brad Pitt. And then Taraji loses to Penelope Cruz for Vicky Cristina Barcelona. And the category is rounded out with the doubt supporting actresses in Adams and Viola Davis and then Marissa okay. Tomei for The Wrestler. So, so you have those. And I know, I know both of the best actress ones. Um, that Meryl won the year mm-hmm. of that Rooney Mara was nominated, and yes. then Julianne Moore won. Yes. And then obviously uh, Colin Firth wins in twenty ten. Yeah. Do you think Eisenberg? Just because the rest of the competition is pretty weak. Jeff Bridges had recently finally won his first yeah. one. Uh, Javier Bardem for Beautiful, I don't mm-hmm. think was a, a serious contender. And then... And he had also recently one. won. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then James Franco for 127 yes. Hours, yeah. So I think, yes, that's the one where I think, A, Eisenberg was probably the clear runner-up. It was probably... I mean, Firth kind of ran film with was like with a heavyweight and, yeah. But you see, you see the alternate universe where Social Network is the one... It's Social Network instead of the King's Speech in terms of yes, kind of like exactly. what happened. So Social Network yep. wins Fincher Picture wins. and Director yep. and then maybe yep. Eisenberg also takes it. Like that yep. is a world yep. I can see. So I think that's the most obvious. And if people really love it, maybe answer. maybe Rooney Mara gets nominated and wins uh, for supporting yes. actors for that. For, or just for Andrew, the opening scene purely. Andrew Garfield is is honestly the performance in that movie that I that go. I really love. But uh, but obviously no no nomination there. But but it's tough. I mean, you look away, you or you look at this, and I mean, it's possible in my mind. 
Roseman Pike might actually have had the best shot after that because Julianne Moore, I mean, she was running away with that for still Alice all year, but after her, it's pretty open and it's several, several actors who could have, who I think probably could have had a, a shot at it. Um, in 08, I mean, Pitt was never going to beat Sean Penn or Mickey Rourke, even if, even if he had crept up above Penn or Penn had fallen out, Rourke was, I think, that was a performance that was beloved. Taraji, I mean, you've got the doubt women and then Marissa Tomei, who obviously, you know, they maybe weren't going to give her another one, but again, in a, a performance that people loved. And then Rooney Mara, I mean, at that point was doing well, but she would have had to beat Meryl Streep, Glenn Close, and Viola Davis, and Michelle Williams playing Marilyn Monroe. I mean, she's probably yeah. the fifth. Did there. Did is all, are all five of these acting nominations first time nominations? I think they Pitt, might be. Pitt is not because Pitt got a Twelve Monkeys. Oh, nomination. Pitt got, Pitt was, oh wow. Pitt was nominated for supporting actor for Twelve Monkeys. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but so that's like others, that. That yes. is one of the reasons I might say Pitt is that he mm-hmm. he. I mean, Twelve Monkeys was what ninety five. I think so. He went yeah, twelve or thirteen years. Uh, and 12 or 13 years, like, I'm sure when he got that 12 Monkeys nomination, everyone was like, oh, he's going to get one every few years. And then he didn't. Uh, and then it took him, it took him a dozen years until he got his second one. It would eventually take another dozen years for him to, to win, uh, after not winning for, for Benjamin Button or for Moneyball a couple Mm -hmm. years later. And so I could have seen maybe like in 2008, he was a close runner up. The movie did pretty well. Uh, it got like a couple, you know, it got a, a number of nominations. Yeah. Over a dozen nominations. It got a couple wins. And you have like this beloved actor and leading mm-hmm. man who hasn't gotten a nomination in a dozen years. And maybe we're not as confident he'll get another one. And so you, yeah. you give him the win. So I, that, that might be my guess. Yeah. I, I think that very much could be right. Although it is one of those things that's, you know, how if they're going to give Sean Penn a second one, how beloved was Pitt <laughs> at that point, right? I mean, and yeah. uh, like Sean Penn, a second one, like what, five years after yep. his first one? Um, yeah. And then I think the, the Rourke train was, I think, uh, pretty big. Um, everyone was talking about that as kind of like the comeback vehicle. People but I think, you, I think you may have been right. Um, you may be right that that'd be the, the closest. Um, yeah. All right, I've got before we before we jump into our one sentence, man. I mean, I just have so much more to talk about, but I, I do have a, a very basic level question. Our you know our podcast is called the New Auteurs, and I think there are two definitions of auteur. There's the one that we use, which is just anyone's like an artist, basically artist, which is to say that you have some artistic style. And you have something of yourself put into your work. And our goal is to try to identify what that is. No more, no less. You're not the sole creator of any work, but you leave your imprint and we enjoy trying to find that imprint. And then there's the other definition, which is the more stereotypical, you know, created, you know, the, the French New Wave and Andrew Saris and this whole idea of the filmmaker, the director as the sole author, author, right? Autor as author instead of artist. Um, so my question is to the extent that you think any director is like a true auteur or author, 
do you would you put Fincher in that group if it's a say a small group of directors? That that's a good question. I think I think you you're right that there are kind of it's a spectrum in terms of how people use use this term. And I think people sure. would I think people would probably criticize us for uh, using the term so loosely. And I would say those people can just they I don't care. Right. Like it's, it's more fun to, to think about people's style and it's more fun yeah. to, uh, to kind of, you know, broaden film, film should be something where we're broadening the, the definitions, not narrowing them, uh, especially because it's, it's easy to see who gets um, historically excluded when you narrow the definitions and it's, it's not people like David Fincher, but to your, to your question, I think, Yes. I, I mean, the thing about Fincher that I think is really interesting, I've mentioned this already and it came up in our mailbag, but I am fascinated by the fact that I think pretty much every David Fincher movie is identifiable as a David Fincher movie. I think you can recognize it as a David Fincher movie, both in theme and narrative and visual style and he has never had a writing credit on any of his movies. And he has obviously worked on the scripts uncredited. And, and that is the case. But he has taken source material in every single instance that was not originated by him and turned it into a product that you watch within the context of his filmography and say, oh, that makes sense. Literally everything I think from Alien 3 through to Gone Girl, which was based on, you know, a runaway bestseller, the book that everybody was talking about. And, and I think that, you know, that is what we talk about when we talk about an auteur in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think he'd be a great director for, I think most people, including myself for a very long time, including today, don't have a full understanding of what exactly directors do. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff and I obviously still, and I still certainly don't. Um, but I, for a very long time, really had, didn't have much of a sense. And I think he'd be a really good person for people to study for like what exactly a director brings uh, and what a director does that's, that's different from what everyone else does. Uh, not that he does everything right uh, or perfect, but that because he's not the filmmaker, or excuse me, because he's not the screenwriter on most of his projects, and obviously he he shapes it on the on the back end. But nonetheless, um, but because there's such a, th- a strong through line without having written the scripts, I think that is like a good way to teach people a very uh, unteachable thing. Um, I just I, I thought it was an interesting question because he uh, allegedly does not like being identified as an auteur for whatever implication he brings to the term, he doesn't like it, which I, I certainly don't fully blame him, though it's a unique position, I think, among directors. I think most directors appreciate that. But I also think it's interesting because he does have such a hand in every part of the process, and he's so meticulous that I think you'd, you'd often associate those qualities with auteurs um, because they must have control over the final product if they're invasive about every single aspect of it. When you talk about the, you know, the the often often discussed uh, hundred takes, you know, for so many different scenes. Uh, I know uh, Arlie Ermey, who's, who's worked with him in the past, 
has been critical and has said that Fincher, quote, wants puppets. He doesn't want actors that are creative, uh, which is sort of indicative of it's my vision, it's my style, and you'll fit into it or, you know, you won't be a part of it. Obviously, I think the way he works can rub people the wrong way, and it's tough to take any one person's word for it. Uh, but I just think it's fascinating the dichotomy of being so particular, but then also not wanting to be called the auteur. Yeah, I think, uh, and, you know, we've talked about this before, and, and it's, you know, reflected somewhat in our categories, but I do think in a lot of ways, the term auteur has become synonymous with kind of this perfectionist control freak. And that's not really what it should be. Like, I think someone can be just as much of an auteur and kind of their style is that they trust their collaborators. And we've talked about with our Jonathan Demme and our other anti-auteurs, we say that kind of in a, you know, uh, joking manner, but, but it's true. I mean, you, you do not have to be a control freak to be an auteur and it, it, it diminishes, you know, kind of the craft of filmmaking to, to elevate those folks above, above everyone else. So uh, in that regard, I mean, I think there, there may be negative, I I can understand negative connotations to uh, the term, which would make me um, understand why maybe he doesn't want to. And like I said, you know, there are, there are for every, for every Gary Oldman uh, complaining about, although I think, you know, in, in generally, good-natured complaining about all the takes. You have Brad Pitt, who's gone back Mm -hmm. to work with him. He's worked with him three times. And Brad Pitt, again, this is just his public image, but he comes across as extremely relaxed and definitely not like someone who you would expect to be out there doing 98 takes and loving it. But Mm -hmm. he still continues to work with him. He's worked with a number of of cinematographers multiple times, editors multiple times, like he, you know, even if he's involved in every stage of the process, it seems like, it seems like he still respects his collaborators as collaborators. Uh, He just respects them enough to take a great interest in their part of the film. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, so uh, anything else you want to get off your chest about Fincher before we give our shot for the one sentence and then, then move into a discussion of the game? No, I don't think so. Let's uh, let's jump into that. Do you have a, a one sentence style summary? I do. I think, and I think it's it's pretty actually quick and easy for me this time. And it's just that for for better and for worse, he's meticulous. And it's I I'm beating a dead horse at this point. We've talked about it a lot. I think he's one of the more identifiable people in terms of like uh, when he's talked about in the public and in the media. His his style is talked about uh, mm-hmm. often. So there's an immediate like. It's very identifiable, but I think the good is that you can tell if you pay close attention that, you know, the way that something was shot and the camera movement, it's all, uh, you know, specifically chosen to reflect either, you know, the character's emotions and inner life or uh, the the contrast between what's going out, out on outside in the world and inside in the character's life, or, you know, to make you as a viewer feel something. He's, he's just clearly making a bunch of specific choices and he's very thoughtful about it. And all those things are for better. But then also I do think to a certain extent, you know, killing people with 98 takes and, and maybe treating people more like cogs as part of a machine than they should be treated. I think that's a little bit for worse. And I, and I do think mm-hmm. it can sometimes get the better of him. Um, but but nonetheless, that's that's who I think he is. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I I would agree with that sentiment. My my sentence, and I'd say it's it's you know for for once perhaps a, I think it's a sentence. 
I think what he makes is slick, compulsively watchable nihilism with at least a semblance of a human pulse. And that's the thing that stands out to me, maybe the, the feeling more than anything. And, uh, and the fact that, you know, I, I think it is, I think he's a very nihilistic filmmaker in a lot of ways. And he's very cynical, but it, I, I do, there is humanity there and it's not just, you know, a complete dive into like the deepest, darkest parts of the human psyche without at least a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Do you think that light is always the thing that shines through most? Or do you just think it's, it's always there? Sometimes, right, if it's a candlelight, uh, sometimes the candlelight's snuffed out halfway through. Sometimes it flickers, dies, comes back, dies. Sometimes it's, it, it shines through in the end. That's, that's kind of how I feel about it. Like it's not yeah. ever one approach. Like it's not like no. always a, a happy, positive takeaway. It's, it's mixed, like life is kind of. Yes, I mean, it's- That was they're, so they're, cliche. I, I hate that I just said that, but it's- <laughs> No, but it's, uh, I mean, you're not wrong. It is, yes, some, some of his movies are much darker and the light is fainter than in others. Yeah. But I do think it's, I do think it's always there. I think even in a movie, I mean, I think probably his seven is probably the movie I think of that is just like the most- Bleak. Yes, but but there's enough there, and like in the Morgan Morgan Freeman's character in particular, I think is kind of the the light in in a lot of ways. So it's there, and it's not it doesn't end well, but but there's some it keeps it from being just brutally oppressive, and 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 the fact that he is such a slick visual stylist, I think, helps because it's propulsive. There's an energy Makes it from palatable. the filmmaking style. Yes. Yep. That, um, yep. that, that's what I think about. That's why I mentioned someone like Denis Villeneuve, who I think does a sim- does similar stuff with things like prisoners and Sicario. All right. So how does the game fit into all this? We've talked about a lot. This, yes. this is one of his, his very early movies. And it was actually going to be even earlier. Uh, I learned while doing some research, it was going to happen before seven. So it was going to be his return to Hollywood after kind of the fiasco of Alien 3, but when Brad Pitt became available and interested in Seven, then that that understandably and probably correctly took priority. This is a this is a strange movie, and you talked about the box office and how it didn't really connect, and I'm not I'm not that surprised. And and honestly, I'm not I'm not sure how well it would play. Uh, I'm not sure it would actually if it was a new movie coming out today in theaters. I, I you do don't wonder. think so. I don't I, it, know. It seems to me that with like that there has been a little bit of a rise in like puzzle box. I got to figure it out. I want a lot of twists mm-hmm. uh, type films led obviously by someone like Nolan. Um, but I, you know, we wrote a bit about this on the site last month. I've seen that trend in horror movies uh, with stuff like Saw, Escape Room. I've seen it sort of across even in, uh, even in some of the sort of the Marvel movies, there's this obsession in, you know, half hour long YouTube videos of trying to, f- you know, figure out heading into Avengers Endgame uh, and Avengers Infinity War, like who had the the six Infinity Stones and who was going to get the- It's just like this whole, like, let's figure it out uh, trend with films. And I could see this playing into that and getting like a pretty big audience that way. I don't, I'd be interested in, to go back and look back at like the marketing and the trailer for the game and whether or not it played that up. It's kind of, 
it's like a basic premise, but it's it's tough to tease the twists um, because they actually don't come until the end. They come in rapid fire at the end, but I had forgotten how late he keeps even the first yes. real strong twist. Yes, uh, I was just watching the the advertising for it actually for for a piece I did on on Fincher's trailers. And they do a pretty, I mean, it is hard to market the movie. The teaser is actually very fun. It's, uh, it's this kind of early CGI, like puppet, like wooden marionette on strings. And that's all you're seeing visually. And it's kind of dancing on the strings. And while uh, dialogue from the movie is being played kind of rapid fire. And then the strings, uh, there's a gunshot and, the strings break and the doll falls and then it it kind of falls into nothingness and then you get the game and then you get the only shot from the movie which is douglas uh, emerging from the water after the car had gone over so that's kinda, amazing that sounds fantastic yeah, it's, it's, it's really good and obviously and like it's very like obvious but but fun you know like he's the puppet uh you see him fall as a puppet and come back up as michael douglas but um, so I think you may, be, you may be right. I'm just trying to get, I mean, it is, but it is strange and it is, it ends on an up note, but kind of, it's kind of weirdly anticlimactic in some ways. Yeah, I, it's, it's a strange movie. It fits, I think, very well into his career. Um, it, it's interesting. I saw, I saw him refer to it as kind of his version of A Christmas Carol. And then I saw, uh, I believe, a review on Letterboxd refer to it as his version of It's a Wonderful Life. So I guess it's his holiday movie, uh, <laughs> a very bleak holiday movie. But, but I think that is, it's, um, it fits very well into his kind of strange, cynical puzzle box oeuvre. Yeah, and I, and I get the, like, I actually, in a weird way, get those comparisons. Like, this is, he actually, and I, and I, and I, you know, I have seen that he envisions the Michael Douglas character as, like, a modern-day Scrooge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this idea, you know, early in the movie, there's a scene, and it came across as a little bit more, a little bit less subtle on rewatch for me when he, when Conrad, his brother played by Sean Penn is first telling him about the game and CRS. And he's like, Oh, but you don't like fun. Do you? And he's like, I don't like fun. And then later in the conversation, you know, I don't like surprises. You know, I don't like surprises. And he really is setting him up as like a Scrooge, a work, 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 doesn't like fun, doesn't have family, lives in this big giant house alone. He has a couple of shots early when he's talking on the phone with his wife there's 17 minutes left in his birthday and he's talking on the phone alone. You can hear his ha- voice echo in like the giant empty house. The The camera, as he gets onto the phone with his wife, pans around him like almost about 270 degrees and you see just how alone he is. And then it like zooms out a bit and you see him in this grand living room with a portrait looming over him. You know, he's clearly establishing him as a Scrooge-esque figure. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of the movie, he's confronted with just a series of scenarios that force him to reckon with who he has become uh, and like who he wants to be. And, and, and in the end, I actually think in a weird way, it is one of his more optimistic movies because like a Christmas Carol and, you know, he does change mm-hmm. a little bit at least by the end. Yeah. I think it's funny. You mentioned kind of the, uh, there's, there's some lack of subtlety there. And I do wonder if that is a holdover. I was looking at 
so, so the, the credited screenwriters on this movie are John Brincato and Michael Ferris, who are a screenwriting team. And I went to look at what else they have done. And I, we are generally a very positive podcast, but their filmography is a lot of couple garbage. Terminators, right? Uh, yeah, you've got, well, and like not the good ones. You've got Terminator right, 3 right, and right. Terminator Salvation, Catwoman, the Halle Berry one surrogates uh primeval and then like a bunch of you know kind of movies i've never even heard of they've got the net which i haven't seen but i know people uh you know i think regard as kind of a camp classic so that's something but so not a not a, a great track record this is a movie that he did pretty extensive work on it seems he brought in andrew kevin walker who wrote seven and wrote sleepy hollow uh, yeah. both, both of which I think have quite good screenplays. And then he was a fairly prominent script doctor, including four other Fincher movies like Fight Club and Panic Room, as mm-hmm. well as, uh, you know, Event Horizon, which is a, which is a fun, uh, nasty thriller. But it seems like he and Walker significantly reworked some of this movie and to, uh, to kind of make it a little more palatable. Did you see uh, at all that... He wanted uh, Jodie Foster to be in it, and I did. He, had, he had he had initially he didn't want her to be in it. You know, to our point, talking a bit about uh, the sort of like film bro reputation of certain filmmakers and the centering of women. Like he did not want to give her a role that was too that was small. Mm-hmm. He didn't think it was appropriate. So they sort of came to this idea of uh, making Conrad a, yeah. a, a, a woman and making it you know, his sister, but then Michael Douglas, or making it his daughter. And then Michael Douglas didn't want her to play his daughter. She wanted him to play his sister, but she was like, we're 20 years apart. We were literally in a movie together when I was nine years old and you were 30 almost. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it just sort of fell through. uh, And, and it ended up, Conrad ended up being a man. Uh, But I thought that was interesting, especially since, you know, I mean, it was Mm -hmm. what, half a decade later that he, he yeah. clearly had an interest in making a movie with her and, and they went on to make Panic Room. Although, although the interesting thing about that is she was the replacement uh, because Nicole Kidman was supposed to be in Panic Room. That's right. And she only left because she like got an injury. She had like a knee injury or something and then couldn't film the movie. And so Jodie Foster steps in there. The there's some, it. yeah, some, some interesting kind of, you know, sliding doors uh, I suppose Jeff Bridges was was going to be Conrad initially uh, and turned yeah. it down, and then Sean Penn steps in, which makes sense to a certain. I mean, Conrad is not a big role; it is a it's a crucial role, but you can see someone. Penn is still. I mean, Penn is still kind of young. Penn is still kind of up and coming. Bridges is already, I think, a you know multiple Oscar nominated actor at this point uh, it's I'm easy interested, to see why he turns it down like Plen, Penn plays it pretty hysterical he mm-hmm. goes pretty far over the top especially during that middle period I mean, well really primarily during that middle period uh yeah. when they when you know the car gets a flat tire and he starts screaming at him he's paranoid they get into an argument in the middle of the street the argument gets recorded and that's what leads up to the to the cab going into the water sequence mm-hmm do you think if it had been so, do you think that was straight up in the script or do you think that was Penn, that was Penn's flair on it? And do you think 
it's always it's always so difficult. It's always so easy to say, oh, I can't imagine anyone else being in that role. But well, that's because you, you saw it one way, right? It's hard. Yes. But like, do you think Bridges would have done it a different way or Jodie Foster would have done it a little bit more measured, a little bit more uh, in control? I mean, this is, it's Penn's vibe a lot of the time. He He can be a little bigger for better and for worse and for better you if know. you ask the oscars yes uh, performances um, often get rewarded yeah but i mean it it feels like that kind of thing is probably in the script because of the setup that he has substance abuse issues um yeah. which which kind of makes me think that that kind of section is supposed to read as a off the meds type yeah. thing um, although it could also be kind of a, there's an idea about whether he's supposed to be a good actor because he is having to play the role to, to trick Nicholas. Right. Well, so, and that's what's so fascinating looking yeah. back at all on it all. And like in the moment, in some cases you're wondering, are they acting? Are they not? And then looking mm-hmm. back on it too, it's like, because, you know, in some ways, if if Penn was literally just supposed to be someone who was uh, off his meds, then, you know, it's a little bit of a grimy, grody way to portray yeah. that uh, and not super. But does it make it any better when Fincher knows and we eventually come to find out he's acting and just right. trying to convince he's, his brother of something? But that's but that's clearly the red herring that they're setting up. Is that maybe he's mm-hmm. off his med? Is is that really any better? I mean, it's it's a small part of the movie and doesn't necessarily make or break it. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I don't know. And I mean, there's other there's that portion of it, but also you know you are supposed to read that at that at this point, Nicholas Douglas's character is is supposed to be questioning the game a little bit, and this is at the point where he's kind of wondering whether it's you know a scam, and you know his brother I think is you know, supposed to be playing up the the fear, kind of the panic as well. So it may be less even of the, you know, drug or alcohol or whatever it is stuff. All we really know is that his brother, that Nicholas buys it. That's what we know. That is what I did wonder about at the time about whether it seemed too obvious because I knew, I obviously know what happens in the movie. Right. And, but because of the way Douglas reacts, you have to believe that this is not out of character for Conrad. Right, right. Um, this is the way he behaves when he gets in too deep on something. Yes, and maybe this so, time yeah. it's something completely different from what it's been in the past, but nonetheless, this is like where he goes. Yeah, um, so it's, it's either what he does or how Nicholas thinks of him uh, right. that right. he's playing into. So, um, so okay. it works so, in that Oh, regard. that's... Right, right. That's a good point. Conrad knows what Nicholas thinks of him. He knows he mm-hmm. thinks he, he thinks he's a failure, a degenerate. Yeah, he a, knows he'll buy you know, it. A little bit, yeah. Um, so I've got, a, I've got an important question. So okay. first of all, how many times have you seen the game? This was just my second time seeing it. Okay. Did you follow it? What do you mean? Like, do you think... I mean, it's clearly supposed to be like twisty, turvy, and it sets up a dozen and one questions of like, wait, but how, how is that possible? How did that happen? How did they get that? How did he figure that, you know, like, uh, did, knowing what happens, mm-hmm. does, does it track? Does it hold up as a relatively well-plotted movie that doesn't have gaping holes? Yes, I, I would say yes. Uh, I remembered how this movie ended, but I did not really remember any of how it got there so i for instance did not remember whether 
who Christine wound up being. I did not remember her Claire, kind of narrative right. through line. Claire, Christine, whichever yeah. one. She I mean, does. it flip flops like three or four uh, times, and I, right. I, yeah, I could not remember that. I, I think. I mean, I was never. There were never really points where I, and again, I am not someone who gets very concerned about about plot holes. And, uh, but I was watching this with my girlfriend and she, uh, is very keyed in to kind of even like minor things that she thinks would be, you know, someone should have caught. Uh, and there were ones where she would say something. There was a, some scene where I think when he gets, yes, when he's with Conrad and they get a flat tire that, you know, may or may not have been shot out and they leave the car and she says, is he just going to leave the car unlocked? And then Douglas like beeps the car and locks the car. So, so Fincher is, I mean, clearly thinking about that detail. Yeah. Yes. And attention to detail. And, but yeah, there, there was nothing in this movie for me that I was, that stood out, but also I was like, I was engrossed in it. And when I'm engrossed enough, minor, minor issues, uh, they, they don't pop up as much. I thought it was interesting. He, he just has this quote about the movie where he says, movies usually make a pact with the audience that says, we're going to play it straight. What we show you is going to add up, but we don't do that. In that respect, the game is about movies and how movies dole out information. And I do think for much of the movie, things don't add up, but I, I actually think it, it, like the plot does hold up pretty well. I think yeah. there's a bit of a, I don't necessarily want to say like a, deus ex machina at the end but like there is sort of like a we answered all these questions with this all your questions with this one big sweep um which is like a little bit of a a, a, of a cheat in ways Mm -hmm. um but i also think again his like attention to detail on all these points even just like you know i mean the flip-flop on claire or you know christine or whatever her name is uh you know, she starts at, you know, first she tells him that all his financial records are getting, happens, you know, all his, his finance, his, his bank accounts have been empty. Mm-hmm. Then he calls his bank in Zurich when she's in the car. And as he's reading his account password, the camera's trained on her. Yes. And to me at this point, maybe it's because I've seen it before, but that was like, oh, she's, she's playing the old switcheroo where you get someone to confirm something by telling them you already know it or you already have it mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but then later when he does get knocked out, uh, or when when she drugs him, you get this sort of like trippy hazy scene in which he's half conscious and she's like telling him what she did and the fact that she stole them and and you know he had just learned from his lawyer that his accounts were actually full so we get yeah. that little detail and then we get the detail that oh she got the account numbers now she's actually taking it so he puts in just a little bit here and there so that even when we don't have like the full picture we have mm-hmm. these little like mini pictures throughout that give us enough information to follow like what just happened or what's going on he doesn't like yeah. it's not sort of like lost the TV show where he sets up literally a million questions, doesn't answer a single one, and then tries to have one answer at the end that answers yeah. everything, right? He does, I think he, he does a good job throughout of posing questions and answering them. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, it is something where you kind of have to, either you buy, you know, by the end that this company is, you know, very good at what they do. And you either buy that they're great at what they do. And if you buy that, then you buy that they can make all the things in the movie happen. And if you don't buy that, then I mean, I guess you're 
fine, but I, I think then you're just kind of <laughs> expecting, you know, you're, you're going to be hard to please seeing movies. You kind of just got to buy in. And, and I think it works. It works well in that regard. So we, br- we briefly, we talked a little bit about just, you know, we've talked about his career a lot and, you know, I mean, what do you think? D- does this to you track with the rest of his movies? I mean, does this seem like an outlier at all? Or does this seem pretty in line with, with what he's done throughout his career? I think it seems in line. Um, his focus on broken men who become obsessed you know, because even like even early in the movie, or not early, but like midway through the movie, there are points where he is clearly more engaged in figuring out what the hell is going on than he necessarily 100% needs to be. Like, obviously, some disturbing stuff has happened, but he, like, there are points where he can let it go and focus on his work until it really becomes untenable, and he chooses not to. He chooses to go deeper in at certain points. Now, maybe he would have gotten there eventually, even without uh, his own laser focus on it but but nonetheless like this you know these broken obsessed men i think you see it in see it in seven you see it in zodiac like i said like this actually reminded me as if he was a detective and he Mm -hmm. was trying to you know you have very one one or two short scenes with police where where he brings in it brings them in and i think that's purposeful i think for the for the most part he plays the role of the detective trying to figure out what's going on and what Fincher is interested in the stories that he tells of, of those types of people are the way that they, they become obsessed at the expense of everything else in their lives. Uh, so I think in that sense, it's very consistent. And then... But it also brings I, meaning to their life. Like they use these puzzles as it's not even so much, I think it's both that they become obsessed with it at the expense of everything, but also it is a way to bring meaning and i mean that goes that's where you can kind of play into the filmmaker you know movies about film narrative where you know his major purpose he is defined by his career uh david fincher is by his career as a filmmaker and it's the thing that you know it, it seems like brings a lot of meaning to his life and and it's the same with all these characters with gray smith and with in fight club um it's people finding meaning even if that the method of doing so is you know maybe a little more harmful than than it is good yeah that's a good point and he also it's interesting coming out of like alien which was clearly a hostile experience he made a series of movies about characters who are just like squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed until we see what they're really made of (laughs) and we see what's at their they're they're pushed to their breaking point and he continue. I think he continues to do that. I think, I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think he's alone in that. I think it's an interesting way of getting at like humanity uh, and what's beneath the surface, which we've talked about he's interested in, but I think it, it fits, it puts the game, you know, pretty central within his filmography. What about, what about, you know, what about, did you notice anything in his style and his technique uh, that that you've seen and you know again because this was one of his later films but he'd also been working in the technical aspects of filmmaking for over a decade so you know maybe unlike other filmmakers he actually came pretty uh you know like a like a senior in we're recording this on the night of the nba draft like a senior in college who's drafted and they're nba ready like he was pretty director ready when he jumped in or i don't know did you notice 
I mean, I, a thing I noticed here, and and partially because it it's a movie, you know, set in San Francisco and in parts of the Bay Area where I where I now uh, now live and where my girlfriend uh, grew up, and so she is, uh, you know, was able to pinpoint this even more than I am. But he is very good at spatial awareness, and and that's something that was very obvious in this in this movie. Is even though it's a a, a movie that's supposed to be a little you know, confusing and confusing to his main character. I think it's always very clear uh, where our characters are and where and what's happening around them in terms of you're never really that confused about place. And he does that with a lot of, he does it with camera movement. He does it with establishing shots. He uh, does it, I think, probably by very meticulously planning out what is happening. Um, but, But he makes sure that we get the sense of it. He does not do a lot of kind of the frantic, cutting that uh that some other filmmakers do that yeah that intrudes on your your sense of place which really helps and he obviously winds up doing this in things like zodiac i think is really good at this in particular but, but that's apparently something. he like uses a single camera for for a lot of this he chose to mm-hmm. use a single camera to avoid the confusion that coverage can create yes but you see it, i mean you see it in his like in some of the chase scenes Right in in one of the uh, early chase scenes where he's chasing Christine or Claire, mm-hmm. and you know he he runs down an alleyway. They're they're chased by multiple people. They run up a you know a, they run down a throw down a fire escape. They're going all over the place. But yeah. like I never felt confused that entire time. You know yeah. I may have been confused about the plot and what the heck was going on in this guy's life life, which made it all the more important that I understood what was happening physically in front of me on the screen. Yeah, he he doesn't really, except for once, right? There's this one, there's the hotel scene when he just, mm-hmm. when he stumbles into the hotel room that had, was apparently his and there are all these illicit pictures and yeah. everything's broken and it's extremely incriminating. And right to the point we were talking about earlier and that he uses, he uses these techniques very purposefully to put you in the mind of the character. Like that is the moment where he feels completely like he's going insane. And, yes. and, and and completely overwhelmed and he cuts super fast like in, yeah. like remarkably in ways that they're like very noticeable considering the rest of the movie uh but they're very specifically used yeah absolutely he has a quote there's a quote in the movie like i don't know three quarters of the way in where michael douglas just is just fed up with what's going on and he just says at one point that he's being uh toyed with by depraved children which is kind of how I feel when I watch any Fincher movie or like Villeneuve. Mm-hmm. That's what I, that's what I yeah. thought, like these like depraved boys yes. making movies and, and just to screw with us. Mm-hmm. I thought that was ironic. Do you have any, I mean, are there any, we've talked about several, are there any other particular kind of scenes or, or moments in this film that you think are really uh, exemplify Fincher? Yeah, we haven't talked as much about when we've in talking about the game. We haven't talked as much about like that, like commercial entertainment side of Fincher. And there's a scene when he's uh, he's gone to the address he tracked down for Christine, and you know, obviously he figures out like it's a fake house, and then the CRS agents are rushing the house, and he's standing in front of the window, and she's standing across the room, and she just yells like get away from the window and all at once it just blows up with bullets he drops to the floor it's just like it's extremely cinematic and Mm -hmm. it it got me thinking that like in all of his movies you know in seven when uh when kevin spacey comes into the police station and all of a sudden at once everyone notices this guy is here or like the zodiac basement scene or they're just 
you know, even like the panic room slow motion scene where she's sprinting to make it back into, it's like, he, he seems to build in one or more scenes that are just like, this is my popcorn scene, man. And this is, and they all crush it. Like he's mm-hmm. very good at that. And it was just nice to be reminded uh, when thinking about like his artistic side while rewatching this, that like, oh no, he's also just like a dope movie maker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, I think in, in most ways for him, it's entertainment entertainment first i mean he understands what movies are you know first and foremost uh for for most people and uh and he he plays into that while still kind of keeping it his own all right do you have any you have any collaborators that you think sort of define his his identity as an auteur yeah i mean i mean kind of going along with my what i focused on when talking about his his style and kind of summing it up kind of from a thematic point of view. I mean, I think Douglas here is great as the lead. And I, I think Michael Douglas is great in general, and he's particularly great at portraying very, very watchable characters who are mostly terrible and who you would not want to ever spend any time with. And that, came he figured out that that was his brand in kind of the 80s and continued to play into it in and i think a really clever way uh but but i think that's a lot of you know that exemplifies fincher somebody who's making movies about kind of terrible people a lot of the time yeah. and kind of and they're dark and they're bleak but you can't stop watching them because they're so slick and so um so entertaining yeah that's that's a good point and i never even like i never even stop and ask myself like why why do i like this why am i Mm -hmm. watching this it's it's like it's that good yeah and that's both with douglas's performance here and with like his movies Mm -hmm. yeah there's something this magnetic quality that just keeps me there yeah good point that's good how are you you know, I, I came up with like a deep cut, uh, which is that I, so I, I, I learned in researching that this guy named Ren Kleiss has been his sound designer, sound editor on every film. And in and of itself, I think that's at least somewhat meaningful. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a lot of, you know, I think he, his films are definitely, they definitely, they the scores never seem overpowering. Well, later in his career, some of his scores are pretty prominent, but his early scores are never overpowering. They seem uh, mixed and matched with song choice, composition, and sound effects to create like one full soundscape that's very dreary and dreadful, especially in the game. I already mentioned like the echoing around Michael Douglas that sort of you know, reflected his loneliness in life. Um, but I also learned that re- for the most part, Kleiss is one of the few crew members who stuck with him for his entire career. I thought, I thought it was really interesting that with cinematographers, he's worked with, uh, he's worked with Darius Kanji, Harris Savitas, and Jeff Cornyn with all two or three times. With editors, he's, he's cycled through three, but he's cycled, he, he did two or three films with all of them. So again, they all like to keep working with him, but it's also exhausting. And so they all move on to something else, but this guy has sort of stuck with him. And I thought that was at least, you know, somewhat meaningful. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and he his movies do have, I think, really great sound uh, and, and the sound work is really impressive. So good, good pick there. How about, a, how about historical comps? 
I, for, for the, yes, for this movie in particular, and I think you can apply it to him uh, throughout his career. I, and this is kind of the, I think the obvious choice, but it, I, I very much think of this movie as a Hitchcockian film uh, with the twists and turns. It very much reminds me of something like Vertigo, um, even down to kind of the San Francisco setting. But, but that's the, that's just the vibe the vibe I get kind of the, the smart crackling thriller with kind of questionable protagonists, which is uh, which is also kind of a Hitchcock staple in, uh, mm-hmm. in many, many films. That's kind of the, the big one that, that I was thinking about. I think, I think that's right. I think, I mean, the movie itself actually, like for me, it, it, uh, it reminded me of, of North by Northwest. I think mm-hmm. mostly for the, like the sort of Kafka esque, like, this invisible shadow organization is after me and how do I keep, how do I escape them? Like, like what is going on sort of feeling uh, the paranoia of it all. But the fact that we both came up with separate Hitchcock movies, I mean, I get, you know, I do think it's the, it's the obvious one. I think you're right. Yeah. And I wrote down, I I wrote down too. I wrote down vertigo and North by Northwest. So uh, So I think those are, yeah, Yeah. we're definitely on the same page there. All right. I got a, I got a couple hypos. All right. Hit me. So first in, well, oof, actually, no, both are equally important in my eyes. So one, do you think he's still in the game? I also wrote down this one as okay. a hypo. Okay, good. Okay. And I mean, I think no, I think no, I think that was it. I think that was, it all checks out to me as kind of the catharsis and yeah. the stuff with him needing to, him needing to, you know, essentially commit suicide to understand somewhat why his father did or understand that he doesn't need to understand that his father did. And there's all sorts of stuff wrapped up there, but so the answer, so the, like my honest answer is no. And that the movie is wrapped up, but how on earth would you ever know? True. You could, right. Yeah. Yeah. You could very easily, that could all, it could be part one of his, his game. Okay. I know. I, I agree that I, I think it's probably not. Um, would you play the game? And that was my other, the other one I wrote. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll answer that. One. I'll answer that one first. I'll answer that one first. Do I know? Have I seen the game? No. Or am I in his situation in which my brother bought me? Okay, I am. Yeah. Then or whatever. What whatever the analog is to absolutely, absolutely, this. hands down, no question. I have too high of a my curiosity bone is too strong. Uh, someone else is paying for it. Yeah, which is crucial. And it's, I mean, it's right up my alley, especially yeah. like as presented to him. Yeah. Yeah. As, I mean, I'm, I'm in the exact same boat. I mean, yeah. it, it would be too good to, I would be wondering for like the rest of my life, if I passed it up, like what this turned right. out to be. Oh yeah. Especially after like meeting a couple of those like guys who are like, it'll change your life. And uh, they're definitely plants, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Everything is a plant, I guess. Everything's a, a plant. Reasonable assumption. That's kind of the, and that's what it seems to be at the end of the movie, um, where they're all there. Right. Uh, not the entire life end, for these but, last couple yeah. weeks has been manufactured. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, one more popped into my head here. Okay. And that is the location on the building where he jumped. How did they control for that? He could have jumped off any ledge. Mm-hmm. That seems very risky. That does seem risky, although I wonder if it's possible that they assumed that they planned out, okay, this is the most likely jumping area, but they had 
on each side of the building, someone there. It's just that if, he picked the most likely one, which was the most, I mean, if you kind of look again, we go back to spatial awareness, he is kind of pushed towards that. They, they kind of heard him yeah. towards that. When area. it's just the shoots. two of them, yeah. she, yeah. Cause it's like directly across from the door where his brother is going to come out. Yes. yes. As far and as where all the people so, are. Yeah. yeah. And so if he does, if he, you know, whatever happens with the brother, um, and they seem to think that he's going to shoot him and he's not going to go over. They clearly think that he's not going to go back over that way. They think he's going to jump based on his profile and he's, he's already standing there. He's going to jump. So it's uh listen, CRS. I, I think they know their stuff. Do you think they, sorry, all these questions keep popping into my head. Do you think they found the gun they claimed they didn't find and replaced bullets with blanks or do you think they just had like a bulletproof vest on and hoped he didn't shoot him in the head because presumably he could have when he like found that gun he could have put in his own bullets i'm just like how did his brother not actually die is what i'm asking uh my guess is that gun doesn't work the way okay my guess is it's some it's controlled for in some way maybe it's just blanks Uh, it could have just like like had the gun itself not work because he could have replaced but like makes the noise or whatever but um, okay Okay. yeah glad we're getting into this okay cool yeah this could be i mean you can kind of pick this apart but i'm so in on the idea that the crs is so good at this that i my answer to everything will be like yeah yeah they did a good job all i need from most movies is if something has a plausible answer that's my movie did a good job otherwise then I am happy to suspend my disbelief. And like, there are plenty of things that happen to me in life that are improbable, but they are plausible and they happen yes. anyway. So I'll assume that the plausible happened. All I need is plausible. Like, this is why I hate the like red letter media and like the kind of cottage industry. Uh, and I've written about this before. It's like my biggest pet peeve of people who are like, this is a plot hole or this wouldn't have happened. And the, it's not like... And they always say it's un- it's so unlikely that this would have happened, but unlikely things happen all in twenty twenty. So that is a yes, it, that is a a bad standard to hold yeah. anything to, let yeah. alone a movie. All right, is there uh, anything anything left to say about the game before we place David Fincher into an auteur category? I don't think so. Good movie. All right. Good movie. Agreed. Big fan. That's all I got. That's all I got. All right. So where where would you place Venture? Perfectionist. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I I tried to get I, creative because I figured same. it was kind of lame, and I and I I couldn't. It's it was just you know. I mean, yeah. It's so that you can fit him at some of these. You know, sure. your film jocks or your entertainers or you know something else, Perf- but like. I mean, if, it di- if perfectionist didn't exist, we could find a spot for him. Yeah, but, but we have this, and I mean, what else were we gonna right. gonna do? To, to to use a standard, I've I have I've started using recently. If he made a movie that didn't feel like a perfectionist movie, didn't feel controlled and 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 you know meticulous, I would be shocked. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Great. So I think that means that it is time for. The David Fincher Letterboxd game. So, Letterboxd. As a reminder, each of us is going to pick one actor, crew member from the game. The other one will have to guess their top three 
highest rated feature films on Letterboxd. We've played around with uh, which sorting mechanism we use, but, uh, but I think it's going to be highest rated. And we won't include TV or unreleased movies, so there's going to be no Mind Hunter, which I imagine is like his number one movie on uh, Fincher's number one movie on Letterboxd. That would be uh, unsurprised there. We'll, we'll skip the game and the MCU has been our general rule. And we'll give plenty of hints if the guesser gets stumped. So, Zach, do you have someone ready? And then we can sure. yeah. go from here. Let's from there. do Sean Penn. Okay. Sean Penn. Highest rated. He has made a lot of movies. He has. I'm uh, full disclosure. I am going to get rid of one movie because I think he on Letterboxd he's like fiftieth credited. He's third to last, and he's listed as himself uncredited in being John Malkovich. Okay, thank so I'm, you. I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna take that out. Okay, but otherwise let's do it. All right, my first guess i'm trying to think whether something like how highly people think of mystic river fast times carlito's way and i'm gonna say one okay my first guess is gonna be one that i'm not even 100 percent sure he is in i think he it's one of those movies where okay. i think he's in it interesting the, the thin red line yeah that's the that's the number one eligible movie. I yes. wasn't sure if he was in it either because I have not seen it, but I know that people famously got cut from it as they do often in, in Terrence Malick movies. He's and then I felt more confident because I saw that he was uh, he's actually listed number one. Yeah, on Letterbox. But then Adrian Brody's listed number two, <laughs> and so I was like, well, shoot. But I'm I'm glad you guessed it. Good work. Yes, I haven't seen it in a while, but I do remember. I'm I was pretty sure I remembered him being in it um even if just but it's that movie is one where not only do people get cut but he casts a lot of people who all have kind of the same vibe in that movie Mm, uh it's kind of a faceless soldier thing but okay and what is that rated for my it's a a 4.0 4.0 okay yep it's behind uh being john malkovich which is a 4.0 and also his number one was uh when the levees broke okay he's in that documentary oh boy all right I'm going to go with Mystic River. Number four eligible. Mm. Tough. I knew you'd guess it. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of his biggest yeah. ones. It's very well regarded, but it's, and it's, it's a 3.8. So okay. I've got two numbers, two and three are somewhere between four and 3.8. So it is, a, it is a tight fit. Okay. This is, that's a helpful boundary. I may, well, We'll see. We'll see if I actually remember that. I was going to say, now that we've done the Letterbox game so many times, there does start to be movies and you kind of remember maybe what their rating is and then you can start to place them. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like we talked about this and maybe I'm entirely wrong. The Tree of Life. Good work. Uh, that's number three. It's a 3.8. Yeah, that's I, I was remembering. Was it that what you remembered? Yes, uh, that it wasn't quite high enough i figured he'd been in a four and i also figured if he was in thin red line thin red line was going to be rated a little higher 
because we knew that it was a uh, Tree of Life. This, that okay. is very surprising to me as someone who uh, I love Malik, but Tree of Life didn't work for me. But I feel like it's so, so acclaimed. And now maybe mm-hmm. people are just split on it and that brings its yeah. score down. But didn't, you know, didn't it win the Palme d'Or? I think so. And I, don't know. I just feel like it was on so many best of the decade lists. Um, I think Fenrir Line at 3.8. is... Yeah, 3.8. It, it does feel low. Um, I'm not surprised it's below the thin red line, but I'm am surprised it's only a 3.8. 3.8. Um, Fair enough. Okay. All right. All right. You're, you're doing quite well. All right. I got to get one, three, one, and four so far. One more Sean Penn movie, and I'm I feel like I'm missing. Do you a... want a hint since you did get number four, or do you want to yes, power through? Yes. I well, I got one wrong. So why don't you give me my letterboxed score? You, you gave it four and a half. Okay. Is it Carlito's way? It is. Yes. I was surprised this is so high. This is a 3.9. It's his number two eligible movie. That was a uh, strong performance. Yeah, that movie is great. Uh, we've talked about De Palma on this podcast before, yeah. but that is one okay. of my- Oh, that, yeah, that makes sense. You do love De Palma. That's one of my favorite De Palmas. It is the good version of Scarface, which is one of, basically De Palma's worst movie, in my opinion. It is like kind of the spiritual successor that's much better. That, that was an impressive performance for someone who's been in quite a few movies. Yeah, what are what are his kind of what are kind of the next run? I'm curious there, of like there, you high or rated stuff. So milk is is what's next. It's a big one that you didn't mention. Mm-hmm. Um, the game is is after that in terms of what's eligible. Uh, Dead Man Walking, which is the Tim Robbins movie with him yeah. and uh, Susan Sarandon. Then uh 21 grams and fast times is significantly lower fast times is a 3.5 yeah i figured Um, that one might be a little more mixed yeah yeah all right so i think i I considered giving you michael douglas here but it is uh i think it's maybe uh, looking at it i think it'd be very tricky for me and i think i may be a bigger douglas guy than you might be yeah uh so i'm gonna go ahead i'm gonna give you fincher and i'm gonna see if you can get you know david fincher's highest rated films on butterboxed his top three and i will say i was correct the number one is mindhunter so the three after mindhunter Okay. So you've got good odds. He only has 11 movies. All right. If I do any worse than you, which is to get three and four guesses, that'll be, that's a tough look. And Sean Penn Might versus, be. he's got a lot of good movies, even though he doesn't, you know, Sean Penn, I think had acted mm-hmm. in 83, not all eligible. Yeah. But the, the, the consistency of quality across the board, like I'm probably working between 4.0 and 3.8 for like, you know, seven movies. Yeah. Pressure, pressure's on. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, I've, I've got to start with the social network. Number five. What? No, no way. What a rough start. How? What? Who is Letterbox? Okay. All right. Well. With with uh, a three with a three point nine. So. With a three point nine. God, Letterbox loves Fincher. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, okay. I will go with Fight Club. 
because number number one. Okay. With a four point three. Four point three. Okay, that's helpful. That gives me a sense. Those are, you know, sort of not necessarily two pull. I mean, I was never going to guess Benjamin Button, but that gives me a little bit mm-hmm. of a of a sense of what type of Fincher Letterbox likes. I can't. I I would I would imagine I can rule out Panic Room. And I can I can almost definitely rule out the game in Alien Three and Dragon Tattoo. I do think people really like that movie, but I I still if I it can't be above Social Network. So that leaves me with Gone Girl, Zodiac, Seven, maybe missing one, but I think that's what that leaves me with. Mank, I guess some people have seen, but I assume that wouldn't be eligible. So I'll start with seven. Number two. Okay. Good work. With a 4.3 also. Holy smokes. Just, which is, okay. to be clear, fully fully insane that it has a 4.3 and the social network has a 3.9. I think that yeah, is. that's bonkers. Much as I like seven. Yeah. Okay. Oh, do I get a clue for my last one? Uh, Since I got may- social may- network wrong? Maybe. maybe. I got one wrong. You got you, one wrong. You did get one wrong, but you have narrowed it down to you only have. Okay. All right. Yes. You will get, you if will you... get, you will get your clue. Okay. You have not given this a star rating on Letterboxd. Okay. That's a real asshole move. It feels like I would be less mad if you had just decided right off the bat you were giving me the clue no matter what and not waited until it would. Oh, actually, I did just rewatch Zodiac and gave it five stars. So it's not Zodiac's. Uh, okay, shit. So, so this is my problem. I had narrowed it to Gone Girl and Zodiac, but I was really leaning Zodiac. And now I'm questioning whether I'm missing something else. So got to be, unless it's Dragon Tattoo, but uh, I'll go with Gone Girl. That is correct. Okay. Unfortunately, I, I just yeah, I've seen it, but haven't rated it because I saw well, it I, I this uh, I thought this was going to go better for me because you actually did not give Zodiac a rating on your most recent rewatch. Neither of them have a star rating. Really? Oh, that's strange. Wow. Thank God for my terrible memory about uh, I know, whether or not I, I rated things. I was that's so convenient. <laughs> I was pretty close to saying to correcting you when you said it just to like <laughs> just try to, be, to throw oh you my off. god that would have uh, been that that would have been beyond the pale though it was, it was uh, you got tricky enough for your own good in the first i did instance. i got too tricky because i was hoping it seemed crazy that you you wouldn't guess both the zodiac and the social network right before gone girl in oh a normal gosh, circumstance yeah. the fact that the, so zodiac is zodiac four yeah it's four so those with are four a, with five, a 4.0 all right well that's fincher and that's the game. It's uh, an excellent, excellent conversation. And we've, you know, appropriately slotted him as a, a perfectionist because what else, what else would we Literally. have done? And it's possible if he listens to this, he would disavow our podcast the same way he did Alien 3. But hopefully we have done, so. done his films and him uh, proper, given them their proper due. But we'll have more David Fincher content up at roughcutcinema.com and we'll be back in a couple weeks and uh, until then thanks for listening go rewatch Gone Girl with the Fincher commentary <laughs>